concluding chapter 2 this afternoon. We will look at verses 23 through 25. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Please, please give it your full attention. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And they cried for help because their bondage ascended to God. So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. May God have blessed the reading of his word, saints. You may be seated. As we come to the last three remaining verses of Exodus chapter 2, we find Israel in a place where we ourselves have found ourselves at one point or another. And maybe not to the severity and extent in which Israel finds themselves in, we may have not ever been physical slaves to someone, well, we can read these last three remaining verses and we can say to ourselves, oh, I've been there before. We can read these last three remaining verses and say to ourselves, I know exactly what Israel is going through. Church, have you ever felt alone? Have you ever in your Christian walk, as holy as you think you are, Look to the heavens and ask the Lord this question. God, where are you? Have you ever been in such a helpless state where God seems so far away and the closest thing to you is your sorrow and your pain? The place of suffering is a place where we all dread to be. But church, imagine being in that place of suffering for four weeks. No, imagine being in that place of suffering for four months. No, we can do it better than that. Imagine being in that place of suffering for four years. No, actually, imagine being in that place of suffering for 40 years. 40 years being in that place of suffering. In that place of suffering. Uh, imagine congregation. Day after day, feeling the same thing you felt. Going to sleep, feeling the same pain and suffering. Imagine, saints of God, feeling like God doesn't hear you for 40 years. Imagine you praying up to God and your prayers are not reaching, or rather not going further than the ceiling point. Imagine groaning and crying out to the Lord for 40 years, but God is silent. God is not responding. In fact, you could even say that there is no indication, outwardly speaking, that God is even hearing you. That church, that dire situation is where we find Israel as we come to the last remaining verses of chapter 2. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. Not many days as in day 15. 
Not many days as in day 30, but many days as in 40 years. 40 years. And church, when you think of the things, or rather, when you think of Israel's life and 40 years have gone by, you would think that things would change. Especially since we read that the king of Egypt has now passed away. You remember that evil man, do you not? That man who forced Israel into hard labor. Well, he's now gone. That evil dictator who issued that demonic decree that all newborn baby boys must be drowned in the Nile has now passed away. But church, well, he may be long gone. His views of Israel are still alive. While evil personified in this man is now dead. There is still an evil atmosphere in Egypt. The air is still thin. The Egyptians are still being as violent as ever toward the Israelites. The Israelites are still being taxed with hard labor. Life as an Israelite is still bitter. They are still slaves in Egypt, even after 40 years. Some saints of God, think about this. Some have gone to their deathbed as a slave in Egypt. Some babies are being born as slaves and being raised knowing nothing other than being a slave. Some, I'm sure, even cursed the very day they were born. I say that, saints of God, to tell you this. How would you feel if you were in Israel's shoes? To some, I can imagine Israel's mentality is likened to one who's been locked up in prison for a very long time. And while you're sitting in your cell, and as the days turn into weeks and weeks to months and months to years, you begin to accept that this is my life forever. This is all that it's going to be. I'm sure some in Israel felt that way, but church, we can apply this to our own lives as well, can we not? To the Christian, Egypt represents that time when we were dead in trespasses and sins. It represents that time when we were under the bondage of Satan, but also we were held in captivity to indwelling sin. Egypt represents such a time in our life where we look back and we can only think how wicked and evil we truly were. Saints of God, indwelling sin, even for the Christian, even for those who are now blood bought from the Lord Jesus Christ, indwelling sin, hear me now, indwelling sin can still force us into such bondage. Indwelling sin can make us, or rather, can become to us a Pharaoh. And the more we give in and obey, the more we are building within our hearts a factory of idols, just like Israel built for Pharaoh monuments. We can ourselves, saints of God, if we don't check ourselves, build within our own hearts statues of Pharaoh. That no, they're not made out of bricks, but they're made out of our own lusts and desires. Our sinful inclinations, saints of God. 
These sinful idols, yes, they may seem pleasurable, but in reality they make our life bitter as a Christian. They make our life bitter as a Christian. Saints of God, I tell you this quick point of application, not to remind you of the dangers of indwelling sin. You know that already. But to urgently implore you to forsake your sin. Not to remind you. But I'm urgently imploring you to forsake all of your sin. All of those secret sins that I you don't want me to know about, but only God knows. Forsake them. Because, saints of God, in church right now, there's a Christian somewhere going to bed in tears because they wrestled all night with sin and they came out the loser. There is someone maybe sitting in this congregation here tonight or rather to this morning or afternoon that that's been wrestling all week with sin and have yet to gain the victory once. It happens, saints of God. It happens. So then what's the solution? What do we do when indwelling sin has so wrapped its web around our soul? What do we do when sin has become to us a pharaoh? Well, we do what some in Israel did. We cry out to the Lord for help. Verse 23, and the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. The words of these texts are vividly strong are they not to say the sons of israel groaned saints of god is the type of groaning that that one has when they're in despair in other words despair the actual sin of despair don't ever succumb to that saints of god satan wants you to to succumb to the sin of despair what that simply means is this there's no hope there's no hope for you saints of god you have the holy spirit Indwelling within you. There is no room in your soul for despair. When you got God on your side. But but in Israel, though, in Israel's case, there was no outward manifestations of there's some help coming. So, so they're groaning. Hope is being lost. One who's lost all hope is one who despairs. One who despairs not only feels forsaken, but saints of God, here's, here's, the, here's the tragedy of despair. It's they actually believe that they've forsaken. It's not merely just feeling, but it's actually in my soul. I know I'm forsaken. This groaning and crying out to the Lord for help is something of the Christian experience, is it not? Yes, although the Christian life is indeed the good life, is indeed the fulfilled life, the Christian life is not also devoid of sorrow and crying out to the Lord for help. It's okay to cry out to the Lord for help. (laughs) It's okay, saints of God, to cry to the Lord for help. In fact, if there's anyone that you're going to cry to, you cry to the Lord for help. We see this, saints of God, in the word of God, do we not? When David was surrounded by enemies, he said in Psalm 5, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for for to you I pray. The same prayer was offered at the time of Jeremiah when God's people were starving in the streets of Jerusalem. 
The prophet said in Lamentations 2, their heart cried to the Lord. Elihu spoke of this cry in Job 35. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the army, the almighty saints of God. Even our Savior knows what it feels like to cry to the Lord. Even the one whom you believe in knows and has experienced what we experience in our dark nights of the soul. Do you remember Hebrews 5, 7, the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Tears and laughs, smiles and cries, sadness and happiness is the experience of every believer. But church, here, here is the good news that we need to hear today. Here is the good news that in times of distress, in times of sorrow, when the lights begin to, to turn off in our souls, we have a God whom we can go to. We have a God whom we can go to. Every Christian saints of God loves to quote Jeremiah 29, 11. Every Christian. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not disaster. To give you a future and hope. Oh, that's a great verse. But but I, I love verse 12. It's verse 12 that encourages me. Then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me. And here's the best part. And I will listen to you. I will listen to you. The Christian's great comfort is that when we are in the dark night of the soul is this. Is that first, we have a God who listens to us. We have a God who listens to us. Listening is, is crucial to a right relationship, is it not? It's been reported that over 50% of divorces occur because of a lack of communication. And usually the lack comes from the two parties not listening to one another. But church, I'm so glad. That we have a God who the psalmist says when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Church of God, you have a God who hears you. Amen. You have a God who hears you. Do not let this truth merely be a reminder, saints of God, and never let it or rather never, never take it for granted. Because you remember what Jesus says in John 9. We know that God does not listen to sinners. God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Saints of God, you went from having a mute God to now having a God who has his ears wide open and is inclined and wants to hear your cries. He wants to hear we're suffering. He wants to hear what's in your heart, saints of God. But church of God, while listening is indeed a privilege, it's this second comfort that I want us to focus our attention on for the remaining of the sermon. The second thing that I love the most. Verse 24 to 25. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God take notice on them. Now, you read this, saints of God, and these words sound mighty strange, do they not? 
It's weird. God hears. God remembers. God saw. God took notice of them. And the reason why these words are weird and these descriptions of God are strange is because God is being described like he's Isaiah. He's being described like he's you. God hears. God sees. God takes notice. He remembers. I don't serve a God that does none of those things. How is it possible? Saints of God, if we know anything about the Lord, it is indeed this fundamental rule. And don't ever forget it. Young children, don't forget this fundamental rule. It's going to make you the greatest theologians of all time. God is not like us. God is not like us. Remember this. In order to do theology right, to interpret the word of God right, remember this, that God is not like you and I. So church, what are these verses meant to teach us then? What does it mean when it's saying that God can hear and see and remember these things? Well, saints of God, it's not meant to teach us that God hears the cries of his people as he didn't hear them before. That's what it doesn't mean. It's not to mean or teach us that God forgot about his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when he sees the cries of his people, then he remembers. That's not what that means either. It's not to teach us that God didn't see the bondage that his people were in and now takes notice of them. Oh, oh, now I see what's going on. No, 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 that's not that's not what's going on. But rather here, Moses is ascribing to God human features. In order for us to better understand something infinite about God. He's ascribing to God in ways in which you and I can understand. Because I don't know about you, but I don't get God. I don't understand God. In fact, as one theologian said, if it's God that you understand, it's not God whom you're understanding. Church, here is the great news for the Christian. Is that we serve a God who not only listens to our groanings, but we serve a God who's ever inclined to put an end to our groanings. Saints of God, that is the great summary of the last two verses of Exodus chapter 2. That's my sermon in a nutshell. Is that we serve a God who's ever and infinitely inclined to take away your pain. Think about how we got here, congregation. We began this book immediately reading of the oppression that Israel is going through. And then as we come to the end of chapter 2, God steps on center stage. And now Israel's God is going to do something about their oppression. We haven't heard about God much. But now God put a spotlight on himself. And he shows himself off. These last two remaining verses are meant to teach us something about God, saints of God, that I hope, I hope you go home and you thank God in light of. It's that great positive attribute of God. And it's this. That God is a God of mercy. That God is a God of mercy. We say that a lot, do we not? God, be merciful to me. 
Have mercy on me, O God. But saints, what do we mean when we say he's a merciful God? Well, just for a quick second, let's just put our theologian's cap on. When we say that God is a God of mercy, we're not speaking of this in a way of an anthropopathism. And what that, that's just a fancy word, saints of God, which means this. The Bible at times ascribes to God human features in order for us to understand, but in reality, God is not really like that. The Bible ascribes to God ears, hearing, right? Arms. But God doesn't really have those things. <laughs> he has the perfection of those things, but he doesn't have literally arms. But it's a way in which the Bible speaks to us in order for us to understand. But when we say God is merciful, we ain't talking that way. We ain't talking that way. We're not speaking of mercy in the way in which we speak of a metaphorical name of God. God is a lion. God is a rock. God is an eagle. No, we don't. That, that's not the. That's not how we categorize mercy. We're not speaking of mercy in a negative name, such as God does not change. That's a negative thing we consider about God. No, 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 no. But when we say God is merciful, what we're saying is He doesn't have mercy, but He is mercy. What we are saying, saints of God, is that God in himself, formally and principally, is merciful. That's who he is. A God of mercy. But saints of God, mercy itself is something interesting. Have you ever even considered what mercy is itself? I pray right now, as many of you are you know, getting a little bit sleepy, you have mercy on me. Have you ever noticed and, and, and took consideration of what does it mean, though? Mercy itself. Mercy carries with it something imperfect. But also something very, very perfect. Uh, meaning, church, mercy requires one to undergo sadness and pain for another. Does it not? But church, this... This undergoing of sadness for someone else's pain is not something that we all experience in the same manner. Don't curse me out, but let me just tell you what I mean by that. Uh, when I'm driving, oftentimes I see a dead dog. If you dog lovers, forgive me. I don't cry when I see a dead dog on the road. I sometimes see a cat lying in a pool of blood because they got ran. I don't cry. And undergo sadness and say, oh, that poor cat. Oh, that poor owner. They lost their animal. I don't do that. Sorry. But also, also, I know y'all don't either. Also, watching the news. Very rarely, when a news anchor says someone passed away, I, I rarely ever undergo sadness for who passed. Depending on the manner in which they pass, I rarely undergo sadness. Do you undergo sadness when you see a homeless person on the streets? All the time, Martina, stop lying. We don't always undergo sadness when we see and rather when we know we ought to be sad. When we know we ought to undergo some sort of mercy. We, we don't do that, saints of God. So depending then... On the situation, we show mercy, which means then that mercy is something dependent. 
Mercy is not merely just me undergoing sadness, but also is dependent upon someone to be in suffering and pain. That's what that means. We all can show mercy. But if someone's not in suffering, if someone's not in pain, I'm not going to be sad. Are y'all sad right now? No, you're not sad. But you can be sad. You can undergo this mercy if suffering and pain was presented to you. Saints of God, mercy is something dependent. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there when you wronged someone? And for so long you were just mustering up the confidence to tell them you're sorry. But you didn't know if they would show you mercy or not. You didn't know if your sorry would actually get through to them. You were hoping that they would show you mercy, but you didn't know. These are the imperfect flaws of mercy. Undergoing sadness. Dependence on someone else's pain and suffering. But saints of God, when we say God is merciful, we are not speaking that way. We are not speaking that way. When we say God is merciful, we are not saying that God looks at our sorrows. And please hear me now. Please hear me now. When God looks at our sorrows and becomes sorrowful himself. That's not what we're saying. That's what you do. God doesn't do that. You may hear Christians say that when a believer cries, God is crying with the believer. There's actually posters made that say that. That your tears are God's tears. When you're crying, God's crying. Church, hear me loud and clear. God doesn't have feelings like us. God doesn't have feelings like you and I. God doesn't go through emotive states like you and I. God, we can say, is not passionate. But we can actually say something better. He is most passionate. We can say, no, that God doesn't have feelings like you and I, but he has the very perfections of feelings itself. God doesn't go from being happy in one moment and sad the next. And saints, the reason why God doesn't have feelings like you and I is the same reason why the ocean can't get wet. It's the same reason why fire can't get hot. Because God is infinitely all that he is. That's why. The great news for the Christian congregation is this. It teaches us that God does not depend on us to be in pain. Only then to react to our pain and suffering. That's how mercy works with us. Our mercy is reactionary. Our mercy is dependent on someone else's sorrow and pain in order for us to be merciful towards them. But saints of God, this cannot be said of God. Which brings us to what we actually mean when we say God is merciful. Here's where we say amen. When we say God is merciful, we're saying that God is ever Inclined to dispel our miseries and sorrows. That's what it means when we say God is merciful. Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, would you please, would you please be ever inclined as I know you are to dispel my miseries and take away my pain? 
saints of God, that is the very perfection of mercy. That's the perfection of mercy right there. That's where perfection of mercy is lodged into. The perfection of mercy, saints of God, and the true goodness of mercy. It's not looking upon someone's sorrows and saying, oh, I feel so sorry for you. It's not being sad. It's not shedding a tear. That's not the perfection of mercy. The perfection of mercy is this. Looking at someone's sorrows and then doing something about it. That's the perfection of mercy. That's the goodness of mercy. Not me crying with you. It's me doing something about your cries. About your tears. And what we were saying with God is that he's ever inclined to do something about our sorrows. He's ever inclined, saints of God. Before you're in pain, God will take away your pain. That's what that means. No church, God may not get sad when we are sad. But he's ever inclined to alleviate our sadness. No, he may not cry when we cry. But he's ever inclined to wipe away our tears. And let's be honest, church. Let's be honest. We don't want a God who gets sad when we are sad. We don't want that. You don't want that. Here's the reason why. is because if God was to be sad when we are sad, God would first have to work on his own sadness before he can get to my sadness. He would have to work on himself before he gets to working on us. No, we don't want a God that's sad when I am sad. I want a God that's a rock. When my waves are going to and fro. That's, that's what I want, saints of God. But church of God... Before I close my sermon, I just want I just want to answer two questions. And the first question will answer the second one. Why does God show mercy? Why does God show mercy? One theologian answers this beautifully. He says the motive of divine mercy is not properly the misery of the creature. But it is God's goodness to be made manifest in the alleviation of. Of a person's misery. What that means is simply this. The reason why God shows mercy is not because of you. It's not because you're crying. It's because God is showing himself in your tears. God is showing himself off in your suffering. What is he showing off then? He's good. And God is good. God is very good. The chief reason behind God's mercy. Rather we can even say the chief reason behind all of God's acts. Is God's goodness, which shows itself off, what? In mercy, in justice. It's for God to display something about himself. It's for God to, it's for God, rather let's do this. It's for us to go beyond what we read in our theological textbooks. It's for us to go beyond what theologians say of God. It's for us to actually experience what we read experience God where what we know about God ceases to be theoretical and is now practical. That's what God is doing. In church, this answers the old question of why does God allow us to go through suffering and pain? Why does he do, why, why does he do such? Why, when, since I'm his child, have you ever asked that question, saints of God? Why am I going through this and that? I know you have. I know the people of Israel have asked that question. And here in these last reigning verses of Exodus chapter 2, we find a clue. 
we find maybe a little clue of why he allows us to go through suffering and pain. Is that sometimes God puts us through difficult situations, not only to develop our faith, hope, and love, but for him to reveal who he truly is. That sometimes God puts us in situations, he lets the the lights go out in our lives in order for us to see how big and how bright he truly is. And church, these last remaining verses are meant to teach us that sometimes we got to sit down and thank God. Not for merely what he's brought us through, but we got to sit down and thank God for the revelations of himself that he brought us to. Sometimes, saints of God, we got to thank God that he's revealed to us who he is in our trials, in our sufferings, in our pain. Not revealed to you how strong you are, how much faith you have, how mighty you are. But saints of God revealed to you how good he is, how merciful he is. How loving he is. Because church, I don't know about you, but I've read textbook after textbook after textbook of some of the greatest theologians of all time. And I can say to myself that I've learned more about God in the times when my life was low. Over and above the times in my life when things were going well. Have you ever been there, congregation? Have you been there? When when you were in some trouble? And God paid a visit to you? Have you been there, saints of God, when you read the words of Psalm 46.1? God is a refuge and strength, a present help of trouble. And when you were in some trouble, the God of Psalm 46 put into practice what he says of himself. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there, saints of God, when you read the words of Psalm 34.18? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And while you sat in your room brokenhearted... You quickly discovered how close the Lord is to the broken hearts of his people. Have you ever lived out the words of Psalm 23? Have you ever been there, saints of God? Have you have you ever walked through the valley of the shadow of death? And while you were walking, you discovered that you weren't walking alone. That while you were walking, saints of God, you began to fear no evil. That, that, you, that someone was hovering over you and that his rod and his staff were comforting you. Have you been there, saints of God, when what you read becomes actually the thing that you're living in light of? Church, when you look back on your life, can you say like that old hymn writer, I thank God for my mountains. I, I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms that he brought me through. For if I had not had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. If I had not had a problem, I would not know that God could solve them. And just how just how God will solve the problems of Israel. When you look back on your life, you can say one thing about God. That man, he's been solving a lot of my own problems. He's been a problem solver for me. And each and every problem that was solved, did you not see that in some of your darkest hours have actually been some of the greatest moments of seeing who God truly is? In some of the times when the lights were off, God shined the brightest. We heard this morning, saints of God, from Pastor Antonio. Beautiful sermon. Creative in many ways, but so, so applicable to us, Reformation Bible Church, of, of all of the various changes 
that happened in our church's history. And through all of the theological and doctrinal changes of the church, through the pain of us losing church members and, and you even losing some friends, through all of that, saints of God, God was protecting and he was preserving and perfecting us the whole time. But saints of God, we do not thank God for doing all that because RBC was lovely. He wasn't perfecting and protecting us because there was something great about us. Do not think so highly of yourself. But rather, saints of God, God was perfecting, purifying us. Because, saints of God, RBC need to see God. We need to see God. Our RBC need to see a clearer picture of God that went beyond what the 1699 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says. RBC need to see something that goes beyond what Calvin says in his Institutes, what St. Thomas says in his Summa, what John Owen says in his volumes of work. RBC need to see God when the lights go dark. And oh, did he show us. Oh, did he show us. And he will continue to show us. He will continue to show us. Show us how good he is. Show us how merciful he is. How loving he is. How faithful he is. How wise he is. How much grace he has. Saints of God, as I close this sermon, I just have one point of application I want to leave you with. Just one. I'm not even going to elaborate on it. Take it home. Meditate and contemplate on it. That the majority of this sermon was speaking of God's mercy. So then how do we live? How do we live? Luke 6, 36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Let's pray.